Will you turn in your Bibles to Philemon, the book of Philemon? And these brothers have some Bibles. We've got a longer walk than normal, but uh, they're going to make that long walk to the back, Bibles in hand. So if you need one, get their attention as they go toward the back. They'll get one of those Bibles to you, and it's marked at the book of Philemon. We started our three-week look at this very short book last week, and we'll conclude next week. It's uh, hard to find because it is only one chapter, but it's tucked between Titus and Hebrews. So if you go toward the back of your Bible, the end of your Bible, Hebrews is back there. If you find Hebrews, which is fairly easy because it's kind of large, and then just a page before the beginning of Hebrews, Philemon. Tonight, as we mentioned, we'll have the second of two presentations of the Living Last Supper. And on that night before Jesus died, He gave that incredible object lesson on love when he washed the feet of his disciples. And on that night, Jesus said to them, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. And then he said this, By this will everyone know that you are my disciples. By this will everyone know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The evidence that you are my followers, that's what a disciple is, the evidence, chief evidence, that you're a follower of Jesus is that you love one another. The Bible has much to say about the fruit of that love and the relationships that we have with one another. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then Colossians chapter 3 Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What marvelous passages. And there are many, many others that we could quote along that same theme. That followers of Jesus manifest that they are followers of Him by their love for one another. And that love is shown in our bearing with one another and our willingness to forgive one another. And yet, the reality in Christians' individual lives and the lives of the church corporately is often quite different. According to Peacemaker Ministries, 25% of the churches in one survey reported conflict in the previous five years that was serious enough to have a lasting impact on congregational life. There are approximately 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the United States every year. In individual Christian lives, Christian divorces add up to 1,224 every day. 23% of all current pastors in the United States have been fired or forced to resign in the past. 34% of all pastors presently serve congregations that forced their previous pastor to resign. The seven primary reasons for forced exits, according to Peacemaker, all involve some form of conflict. The average pastoral career lasts only 14 years, less than half of what it was not long ago. 1,500 pastors leave their assignments every month in the United States because of conflict, burnout, or moral failure. There's actually a cost, not just a spiritual cost, which is most important. There's actually a monetary cost to replacing 
The direct cost of replacing pastors who have been forced out of ministry, usually because of conflict, is approximately $684 million a year. Now, why do I tell you all that stuff about the pastor thing? One, I don't think I'm being ushered out yet. And that last one about the money, I'm just saying, if you ever do force me out, it'll cost you, okay? So just bear that in mind. But, you know, you have what the Bible says with these lofty statements, and then you have the reality. I just was saying to some folks at our newcomer's brunch yesterday, this little ditty that I heard a few years ago, to live above with saints we love, well, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And that's very often the way it is, isn't it? Well, the passage that we will consider this morning is part of a very short letter written by Paul to his dear friend Philemon. And the reason that he wrote it is what I explained last week, and I'll briefly review for you now. Philemon and his family, his wife, Aphia, and adult son, Archippus, are mentioned in verse 2, and they are a wealthy and devoted Christian family. The church in their town, Colossae, meets in their home. They also own slaves. Now, that may seem inconsistent with their Christian commitment, and ultimately it is, and I'll say a bit more about that later in the message, but remember this. Christianity was relatively new at the time Paul wrote to Philemon, and its effects on society would take some time. One of Philemon's slaves, a man named Onesimus, ran away from his owner, and as we'll see next week, he probably stole some money from Philemon on his way out. He made his way from tiny Colossae to gigantic Rome, hoping that he could meld into the crowds and not be caught since he was, in fact, a fugitive from justice. It's in Rome that somehow, in the providence of God, Onesimus came into contact with the great apostle Paul, who, according to several references in this letter and three other letters in your New Testament, those letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest in what is, according to Acts chapter 28, a rented house, and he's probably chained to a Roman guard. And when Paul comes into contact with Onesimus, this fugitive, he knows what he has to do. He has to return him to Philemon and to the city of Colossae. He does that, but he sends Onesimus home with this letter to his friend Philemon. Now we saw last week in verses 1 through 7 that Paul prepared Philemon at the outset of the letter for the, for the hard thing that he was going to ask him to do. Let me just stop for a moment. Do you guys think I should go to this? You did? I lowered it down there while we were singing. All right. I'm going to raise that up a little bit. All right. Okay. Good. Thanks. So we saw last week in verses 1 through 7 that Paul prepared Philemon at the outset of the letter for the hard thing that Paul was going to ask him to do. And he did that by mentioning in the very first verse that Paul is in prison. And it was a subtle reminder that Christian living is hard. 
and that what I, Paul, am going to ask you, Philemon, to do is hard. But it's also the Christian thing to do. And then in verses 4 through 7, Paul recounted the many virtuous characteristics that he'd seen and he had heard about in the life of Philemon, saying, in effect, that God has made you just the kind of person who can do this hard thing. And you need to do this hard thing because we cannot leave this breach in your relationship with Onesimus as it is. It must be dealt with biblically. So to put it into the words of the first point that's in your outline, the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look. Christian relationship requires reconciliation. Christian relationship requires reconciliation. Verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now in verse 8, it begins with this word, therefore, which connects what he's now going to say to what we saw last week. Because you're a Christian, Philemon, and because you have the kind of Christian character that's required to do hard things, therefore, I appeal to you to reconcile. Now reconciliation means that barriers to relationship have been removed. Reconciliation means that barriers to relationship have been removed. This is true between God and us. But we are often content to leave ourselves at a distance. At a distance geographically or even emotionally. There's a letter in your New Testament. It's the second letter that the same Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians. And the 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians are a defense that Paul makes of his ministry against accusations from those who are in Corinth. And in the midst of that letter, in chapter 6, he says this, We have opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. New Testament scholar Robert Gromacki's commentary on 2 Corinthians is titled, A Heart Opened Wide. Because he sees that as the very center of Paul's purpose in writing the letter of 2 Corinthians. That they would not only have a relationship at a distance, that they would not only have a relationship if they were together, but that they would have a relationship in which their hearts are knit together. We too often are content to have acquaintances in ministry rather than biblical, loving, heartfelt relationships. And God wants his people to be reconciled. And in these verses we see what that reconciliation requires. And so as we do, friends, and because it is so very important, Let's pause for a moment to ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather on this Lord's Day and to open your word. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, enough to give us light for the path to which you have called us. 
Thank you for the light of your word that tells us how to behave, that tells us how to talk, that instructs us on how to think, and even the things that we should feel, and in particular toward you and toward one another. And so help us, Lord, to have open hearts and attentive minds, and help us to be changed by your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul says in verse 8, I could be bold and order you to do and order you to do what you ought to do, and yet I prefer to appeal on the basis of love. He's saying this. He's saying, I'm not interested in only the right action, but I want that action to flow from the right heart. That is, he could get the results that he wants, and that is Onesimus being returned to Philemon without penalty. He could get that result by exercising his authority as an apostle and simply demanding it. But he's not only interested in the result, he's interested in the process that yields that result. He's not only interested in what gets done, he's interested in how and why it gets done. A grudging acquiescence to command will not have the desired spiritual effect on Philemon or on Onesimus or, frankly, on Paul, who says, you will refresh me, you'll renew me, renew my heart if you're to do this thing. So instead of commanding and demanding, he appeals to Philemon as a man who clearly loves others. In verse 5, he said of Philemon, I hear about your love for all of God's holy people. And in verse 7, he mentions Philemon's love of Paul personally. So Philemon, you're a man of Christian love. And so now I'm calling you to do what that love requires. And to be reconciled to one who has wronged you. Now in order to do that, there's going to have to be at least three things, and I have those in your outline. This reconciliation requires reception. It requires reception. That is, the offended, Philemon, must be ready and willing and eager to receive back into relationship the one who has sinned against him. Paul makes that appeal then to him, and in the middle of verse 9, he says this, I'm making this appeal as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, verse 10. He mentions that he's an old man. That's a translation of the Greek word presbytes. We get our word presbyter from it. It's often translated elder. In New Testament times, older people were accorded respect, and it gave them moral authority due to their experience and their assumed wisdom. Now, the repeated reference from verse 1 to Paul's circumstance as being a prisoner is strategic. He places it here strategically, I'm convinced. As he gets ever closer to making his actual appeal to Philemon for what it is he's asking him to do, he wants to remind Philemon that if what I'm asking you to do seems hard, then welcome to the club because I've had to do hard things and Christians are called to hard things. That's why I'm in prison. So rather than commanding as an apostle, he appeals as a wise, older Christian man and on the basis of their mutual commitment to the Lord, even if it's hard. And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now Paul will say this, this familial kind of terminology, 
about those that he is mentoring, those that he has a spiritual influence over. He'll refer to them as his family and as young men as his sons. He did that with young Timothy, his protege, to whom he would later pass the mantle of leadership. He starts his first letter to Timothy, Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then likewise, his second letter, Timothy, my dear son. And then the other person to whom Paul wrote a letter in your New Testament that we call the pastoral letters. A young man who's in the ministry, Titus, he says, Titus, my true son in our common faith. And in Onesimus' case, he apparently came to Christ through his contact with Paul in Rome. Because notice what verse 16 says. Onesimus is called our dear brother and then our brother in the Lord. Now as he makes this appeal, beginning in verse 8, and then starts to hone in on it in verse 10, you see the word Onesimus, the name Onesimus, in the middle of verse 10. But actually in Greek, actually the way Paul wrote it, his name does not come to the very end of the last word of verse 10. So Paul is setting him up for nine verses, really all all of ten verses. And he doesn't mention the person about whom he's writing until the last word of verse 10. He says, you can have him back. He's helped me, as we're going to see, but you can have him back, verse 15. But it's not until verse 17 that he actually makes his request explicit. In verse 17, he says, welcome him. Now, this is a model of Christian tact. It's not manipulation on Paul's part. He's not manipulating Philemon. He's not shading the facts to conceal what should be made known. Or he's not highlighting what's not central for his own benefit. Rather, he sets in context the appeal that he's going to make. And then having properly set the context... He mentions that it's about Onesimus. And he mentions specifically what it is he's asking Philemon to do with and for Onesimus. And in Philemon doing this, in welcoming back Onesimus, he's simply doing precisely what our Father, God the Father, does with us. Most marvelously illustrated in Jesus' story of the prodigal son as the father runs to meet this wayward son to bring him back into his home and throws a party for him. So Christian, reconcili- Christian relationship requires reconciliation, and that means it requires reception. The person who has been offended needs to, like God the Father, be willing to receive back the one who has offend- offended them. So it requires reconciliation, That means it requires reception, but secondly, I say, it requires repentance. It requires repentance. Now, many of you know that the word repentance in your New Testament is, it's a great, well, you may not know this, but it's metanoia. And that literally means change of mind. And so it requires a change of mind. But repentance is not only a change of mind, but it is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Now, you might rightly ask, where do you see repentance from Onesimus in this passage? Well, remember from last week that we saw that Onesimus was sent by Paul from Rome 
to go along with a man named Tychicus to deliver both this letter to Philemon and another in your New Testament, the letter to the Colossians. So here you have Onesimus. Now think about this. When Philemon reads what we're reading, Onesimus is standing in front of him. He's put this thing in his hand. He's the guy who's delivered the letter. He's standing in front of his owner who has a right to be angry with him and can inflict punishment on him. But there he is as Philemon reads the letter, ready to take whatever happens because it's the right thing to do. So repentance is seen simply in the fact that he's there and he's delivering the letter. He's returned and he's changed, as we're going to see, because he's now a Christian. He's different than when he left Colossae and Philemon's employ. He can now fulfill what Philemon and the church at Colossae will read in the other letter that is being delivered. Colossians 3 says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. We see this change, this repentance, change of direction in Onesimus, in the fact that he delivered the letter, but we also see it in verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful, both to you and to me. Now, interestingly, the name Onesimus means useful. Now, of course, having the name that means useful doesn't mean you're actually living up to it. As part of all of this, I looked up what my name means. Ken means handsome. Now, really, you have to laugh. Ken means handsome, and clearly, clearly, not everyone who has that lives up to it. Uh, Ken Rapp is here. <laughs> I have a whole list of Kens who are clearly not living up to our name. Onesimus means useful. But it appears from the fact that he left and that he stole that he was probably really useless. And a play on his name is actually used in verse 11. You could actually translate the first part of verse 11 as Formerly useful was useless to you. Formerly, the guy whose name is useful was actually, I know Philemon, useless to you. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this. There's a double play on words here. An ancient reader would have thought this play on words much more clever and humorous than we would, seeing it in its original context. That Paul uses it at the beginning of his plea for Onesimus shows something of his ex exquisite sensitivity intact. It's as if, realizing the radical nature of what he's about to ask of Philemon, Paul deliberately introduces this bit of humor. And then he says in verse 12, I'm sending him, who's my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. So Paul is asking this of Philemon, but he's asking it 
relating to a man, Onesimus, who is a changed man, a different man. He has come to faith under, under Paul. He has thus become his son in the faith, his spiritual son. He has shown repentance by virtue of his changed direction. He who was formerly useless, Paul has actually seen him to be useful. And he will not only now be useful to me, but he'll be useful to you as well. He's repentant. Now, one last comment on that. Friends, repentance is for sin. And it is sin that requires biblical reconciliation. Now, I say that for this reason. Not everybody who takes you off has to be reconciled. If someone does something you don't like, or if someone does something that you don't understand, that doesn't require reconciliation if it's not sin. And presumably, right, it's not sin to do something you don't like. Presumably, it's not sin for somebody to do something that you don't understand. And others are not to be held to our assumptions about them. Others are not to be held to the figments of our imagination about their motivations and intentions. Others are not to be held to the uncharitable judgments that we make. Those things do not require the party against whom you've done that, made all those assumptions and had all those thoughts. It doesn't require that person to reconcile for they may have not have done anything that requires it. It may well require that you seek reconciliation from them for the way that you have thought about them and the conclusions you've drawn about their intentions. Now, I could really go on about that. But dear friends, Having a disciplined mind and a charitable heart toward our brothers and sisters is spoken of in Scripture multiple times. That is coming to a lesson or sermon near you, but bear it in mind, please, as we interact with one another. Christian relationship requires reconciliation. It requires reception by the offended. Repentance on the part of the offender And thirdly, I say in your outline, it requires restoration. Restoration. Verse 15. It requires restoration. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you, Philemon, for a little while, was that you might have him back and have him back forever. Now, I love the first word in verse 15. Perhaps. Perhaps the reason. Perhaps there's a reason for all of this. And of course, Paul knows there's a reason for all of it because there's a reason for all things that God allows. And as I pointed out last week, none of us knows how it is that Onesimus came into contact with Paul in Rome to begin with. But somehow God Almighty orchestrated the circumstances in his providence that these two men came together and that it turned out that he was a fugitive slave from Philemon and that Philemon was the dear friend of Paul. God had a plan for this entire situation. So when Paul says in verse 15, perhaps there's a reason, and perhaps this is the reason. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Reminds me of that marvelous story in the Old Testament, 
of the romance between a Moabite woman named Ruth and an Israelite named, named um, Boaz. And here's what chapter 2 and verse 3 says. As it turned out, Ruth was working in a field belonging to Boaz. And that's how they met. As it turned out, it just sort of happened that way. That she wandered to this particular field. But of course it didn't just happen that way. And God uses all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for his appointed purposes. Psalm number 76 says this, The wrath of man shall praise you. That is, even the sinful anger of man, God will use that and everything else toward his end of acquiring glory for himself. And so Paul says, take him back. Verse 16. No longer as a slave, but restore him better than a slave. As a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I just need to mention in passing that the alliteration for those three points of reception and repentance and restoration I stole from John MacArthur. Commentary's mine, but I liked his three words. Okay? Now, when Paul says in verse 16, take him back. And when he says treat him as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord, that may well mean that Paul is telling Philemon, give him his emancipation. But the letter doesn't say explicitly whether or not when Onesimus returned, he was given his freedom. At minimum, he's to be restored to his former position, but his new status implies more and better than that. And that brings me to the second point that I will go through more quickly in your outline. Christian relationship requires reconciliation, but it also requires understanding. It requires reconciliation, and it requires understanding. Now, I use the word understanding for this reason. In order for us to reconcile with one another, when wrong has been committed, friends, we cannot place demographics, personalities, situations at the top of the list with regard to our relationship with one another. What has to be at the top of the list, what we must understand about one another is this, that no matter our demographics, no matter our station in life, no matter our situation, that we are all equal before God. And because we are all equal before God and understanding that we are all equal before God, now I have a responsibility to have relationship with you, and to reconcile with you when that relationship is somehow breached. Now that understanding includes the fact that you are my fellow human. That includes that we are both made in the image of God. And at the end of verse 16, Paul is telling Philemon, receive him as your fellow man, but now also as a brother. And we have this in Genesis chapter 9, this value of all humanity made in the image of God, where we're told, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Here's why. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now that's a, a command, by the way, to capital punishment. You can deal with the politics of that, and I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But that's instituting capital punishment in the Bible. But what I want you to notice is the reason for it. 
Because God values life, and those who take life are taking life made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter whose life is being taken in murder. A human life is valuable simply because that life is made in the image of God. Now that undercuts slavery. And that's what Paul is attempting to do. And that's what Christianity eventually did. Undercuts slavery by undercutting the very premise that there are superior and inferior peoples. We are all made in the image of God as humanity. And then in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's what we must understand if we're going to have relationship. We must understand that who we are precedes always what it is we do. Who we are always precedes where we are and what it is we do, and what situation we are in. And so we must always think of all people as fellow image bearers, humanity. And then if they are Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian relationship requires reconciliation. It requires understanding. And then lastly, it requires sacrifice. Christian relationship requires sacrifice. Verse 17 So if you consider me a partner, Philemon, welcome him. And welcome him as you would welcome me. Now the word translated partner is related to koinonia. And back in verse 5 last week, Paul referred to uh, Philemon as a partner in the gospel, using that word koinonia. And now here he's alluding to it again. And if you consider us, in effect, business partners. Now, our business is not for profit. Our business is Great Commission Incorporated. But if we are partners in this great enterprise, and of course, that's rhetorical. He knows that he considers him such. Then if that's the case, since that's the case, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then verse 18, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Christian relationship requires sacrifice. And Paul is here willing to make the sacrifice on behalf of Onesimus. Onesimus has nothing to pay. He has no restitution that he can make. Paul is willing to make it for him. And in so doing, Paul is reflecting the words of the beloved disciple, John, who wrote the letter of 1 John, and in it said this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The Christian life is marked by a willingness to give up that which is precious to you for the sake of God and others. That's what sacrifice is. Giving up what is precious to you for the sake of God and others. Now that giving up of what is precious to you and to me can include immediately we think of monetary value. Certainly includes that. That's the case here with Paul making, willing to make restitution monetarily for Onesimus. 
But there are many other things that are precious to you and me as well, right? You might have to sacrifice your pride. As precious as that is to you and me. Christian relationship means you sacrifice what's precious to you, whatever that is, monetary value, or view of yourself and self-image, or losing face in front of that person or persons. But Christian love always, Christian relationship always requires sacrifice. Jesus, of course, gave the ultimate sacrifice. Paul is modeling his willing to sacrifice on behalf of someone else. We have to be willing to sacrifice ourselves in our relationships with one another and be willing to sacrifice ourselves, give up what's precious to us for the sake of others and on their behalf. Now, in the third message in this short series next week, we're going to see how that willingness for Paul to make that exchange is a beautiful picture of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. I say in your take-home truth, Christian relationship is the result of Christian truth. Christian relationship is the result of Christian truth. Everything that I've laid out to you about reconciliation between God and man and us emulating that now in our relationships, about understanding that we're made in the image of God and that therefore what we are precedes where we are and what we do, and the fact that we are all one in Christ, and the fact that biblical love always requires sacrifice, that's all simply summarized in biblical Christian truth. And nowhere is our belief in that Christian truth more clearly displayed than in the way we pursue our relationships with one another. Here's what that means. If our relationships are not right, then we really don't believe what we claim. We can say we believe these truths, but those truths are put into practice in Christian relationship. And we're going to end momentarily. But friends, let me ask you, do you have relationships that are unreconciled? If you do, then there is a truth or truths that you claim to believe as a Christian that you have dismissed in favor of continuing that separation between you and someone else. You say, you know, I don't know if I have that. Well, let's do a test, okay? Uh, that person whose name, when you hear it, you wince. You get a bit of a knot. Or that person who at church you pass in the hallway and you can't quite make eye contact with them. It's that person. And when that happens... Jesus is not pleased. Because Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my followers. If you love one another. If we love one another, we're willing to forgive one another. And be reconciled to one another. May we do that for Jesus' sake and for the glory of his church. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of opening your word. We thank you, Lord, for showing us what we need in order to live as your people. To live as your people in the world and to live as your people in the church. 
Lord, I acknowledge that I bring the world into my activity in the church. Because the world is still in me, because I still battle the vestiges of indwelling sin, then in my relationships it rears its head. Thank you, Lord God, for convicting me. Thank you, Lord, for showing me in your word what is amiss and what's to be done when relationships are breached. Lord, I pray that the same will be true for my brothers and sisters here. That we will see the conviction that you give from your word and by your Holy Spirit as a gift from you. So that we can truly be seen as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The model of love and mercy and forgiveness. And if we are to claim his name, then we must walk as Jesus did. And Lord, we can talk. And we can sing. But unless we walk the walk, then there's something in what we sing that we really don't believe. And so, Lord, probe our hearts. Show us what it is that we are denying about your truth and your promises. And then show us that person, those persons, that we need to be reconciled with for the sake of your glory and your honor. And we will give you the praise for all of this. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.